Please pray with me. Lord, you know that we live in a crooked and depraved generation where men and women have abandoned the hope of the gospel for a distorted gospel. Father, we ask that you would shine your light, that you would speak your true you would speak your gospel word in such a way that light would be divided from the darkness, bone would be separated from marrow, good would be divided from evil. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would cut us to the heart with your word and that we would become a new creation in Christ, born by the gift of the Holy Spirit, to become the men and the women, the fathers and the mothers of your kingdom. We pray this in your most holy name. Amen. Before diving in, I just wanted to uh, say that during Dan Fager's song, I had this strong impression that there's someone here who uh, God's been... uh, sort of interacting with and ministering to through the different teachings where we've confessed our sins and um, submitted our lives, our entire lives to God and received uh, that infilling of the love of God to fill in the gaps in in your soul and that uh, there will come a point later this evening uh, for this individual um, where it's, a, it's almost as if you've lived with something in your life that is not from the Lord for so long that you've come to uh, believe or feel as if that thing, whatever it is, is just a part of you. Um, and I just have the sense that it's a dark thing or a darkness. And the Lord is preparing you, after all of the ministry of today and last night, to, uh, to give that up tonight. Uh, to have that washed away from you. And we'll do some ministry time around the font at the end of this teaching. If that's for you, I just pray that uh, God will give you courage when the time comes this evening. This topic is about gender and idolatry, and gender is the hottest controversial issue of our day. It's also the greatest cause for confusion among young people. The controversy over gender, what we believe about men and women, affects how we view the dignity of human life, the value of human life. How we understand marriage, how we understand human sexuality, how we understand parenting, and ultimately one's individual gender identity. The controversy over gender is so widespread It has an impact on our legal system, our religious institutions, our education system, and our psychological therapies. It even impacts our faith. Our very relationship with God is impacted by gender. And the future of our children, lives not yet born, is impacted by how we understand gender today. Today, every kind of distortion about gender is easily accessible. The culture is rampant with strange ideas about gender and sexuality. Let me list a few examples that I have encountered in the last two months. 
This year, the year 2013, the state of California passed a law that makes it illegal for any licensed therapist to help a client who has unwanted same-sex attraction. This kind of counseling is called conversion therapy or reparative therapy. The California law states that anyone who has a single homosexual thought or feeling is to be labeled gay and no attempt is permitted to encourage thoughts or feelings for the other sex. It is believed to cause too much damage or harm to the individual. Christian therapists have seen this coming and it begins with California this year. And it will spread just like the legal redefinition of marriage. Soon Christian therapists will have to give up their license and move to the church to continue providing care for those who have unwanted same-sex attraction. In an Ivy League college on the East Coast, a woman who encourages young women to consider marriage and children is being labeled a misogynist, that is, a hater of women. And she is being abused in the public arena for having oppressive traditionalist views of women, endorsing the slavery of motherhood upon young women. In some southern states, women are continuing to struggle under the oppression of real misogyny, where they aren't permitted to have any leadership role despite their incredible giftedness, and they aren't being paid the equal amount in their paychecks as men performing the same jobs. And in the northern part of the country, men and women are undergoing incredible surgeries to change their bodies to become the other sex. A variety of fertilization methods are being made available to non-traditional families to conceive children, including surrogate pregnancies and the like. Even in our own area, in the last few years, many Christian foster and adoption agencies had to shut down because it became illegal for Christian organizations to deny same-sex married couples the right to foster and adopt children through their organization, despite the many non-religious agencies in the area that work with same-sex couples for foster and adopted children. Because of legalized abortion, today, five of the seven largest pharmaceutical companies around the world create vaccinations using human diploid cells, which are the cells of electively aborted fetuses. Right now, there are 23 vaccinations that were developed by and contain aborted fetal DNA that is on the shelf, meaning it is available to consumers now. 23 vaccinations. And there is no law requiring that consumers be informed that these, that these vaccines have DNA fragments from aborted fetal tissue in them. And the most shocking to my wife and me is the fact that Cinemix, a San Diego biotech company, has more than 70 patents established already related to enhancing food flavors which are tested using aborted fetal cells. And there is no legal requirement to inform future consumers about the use of human aborted fetal tissue in the production of the food they are consuming. The popular food manufacturers that have contracts with Cinemix are Campbell, Kraft, Coca-Cola, 
Nestle, and PepsiCo. It won't be long before we are faced with the situation of unwittingly consuming our society's children if the laws don't change. The controversy over gender is at the center of such tremendous diabolical and demonic deception in the world today. Women and men are losing any understanding of what it means to be men and women. And now confusion reigns over how we view ourselves, how we view other men and women, and we don't know how to relate to others. We don't know how to love others. The problems are severe and widespread. Where do we even begin to speak truth into our present cultural landscape? I believe that we are called by God to speak a prophetic word into the culture, a word about gender. The loudest voice in the culture right now is the voice of the LGBTQ activists in efforts to include anyone who has a non-biblical view of sexuality. This group represents lesbians, gays, bisexuals, transgendered, and questioning individuals. LGBTQ. And so we have to begin by answering the simple question, can my sexual desires be changed? Let's look at that question for a moment. I've had many conversations in the last two months with therapists and ministry leaders who have been trying to help men and women with unwanted same-sex attraction. And my general take on the situation is that they are all really discouraged. Many of them are wondering, can homosexuality really be changed? All we hear in the news are stories of men and women who tried and failed to change. And the media loves to exploit the stories of failure while ignoring the stories of success and transformation. More and more experts in psychology and in ministry are joining Lady Gaga in her conclusion that we are born this way and we cannot change. Christians are beginning to believe that there is no hope for transformation or change in Jesus Christ. And that we must resign ourselves to this situation and adjust our theology, adjust our hermeneutics, and adjust our ceremonies to accommodate this unhappy verdict. We don't believe that here at Church of the Resurrection. At this church, we have witnessed hundreds of men and women succeed in their healing journey to love others rightly. I do not exaggerate. We have seen hundreds of men and women. We have seen a few abandon the healing journey. And our own experience demonstrates that the failures are, are, are vocal and loud, while the successes are quiet and hidden. Most who struggle with some kind of sexual brokenness do not want their stories to be public. They just want to quietly love their spouses, grow in the Lord. They want to love their children and serve the church without constant public scrutiny, without the media eagerly waiting for them to slip up and make a mistake. There are literally hundreds of men and women who attended this church who have struggled or currently struggle with same-sex attraction, and even more who struggle with other forms of sexual brokenness. We are all broken in one way or another in our sexuality, some more, some less. But everyone needs to bring their appetites, their passions, their emotions, 
their sexual feelings and their intellect into the presence of God, to submit on the level of their feelings and thoughts to the presence of God. No two people are alike in their brokenness. No two stories are the same. There are always similarities, but every disorder is unique and a result of different factors in their heritage, their upbringing, their environment, and their own personal choices. And every healing journey is unique. No two follow the same path. But all healing paths lead to the same man, to the same cross, to the same freedom, and to the same love. He draws us all in, no matter where we come from, and he makes us new. We all know that commandments in and of themselves do not change human hearts. Christ did not come to give us more rules to follow, but to change our hearts so that we would no longer need his rules, no longer need the rules. His love is like a mother's and a father's, and yet vastly superior. He supersedes them both. I want to speak for a few minutes about the struggle of the homosexual vis-a-vis the theology of the body by John Paul II. There's a lot to learn for all of us and a lot to extrapolate for all the other areas of brokenness that we have experienced that I hope will bring you more hope and perhaps a vision for who we are to become as we continue to follow Jesus. John Paul II said, God gives us all the hungers we have for love, for union, for happiness, what the Greeks called eros, to prepare us for an eternal participation in the bliss of the Trinity. Before sin, Adam and Eve experienced sexual desire, eros, only as the desire to love as God loves. There is no shame or fear in love, for perfect love drives out fear. Nakedness without shame reveals the meaning of the body, which is the body's power to express love. After sin, Shame enters as a natural form of self-defense for the person against the danger of becoming an object for sexual use. In the biblical vision, those who remain unmarried because of the kingdom do not reject sexuality. Rather, they devote all of their desires for love and union, eros, to the marriage that alone can satisfy the marriage of Christ in the church. In this way, those Christians who commit themselves to a life of celibacy for the kingdom testify with their lives and their bodies that heaven is real and it is worth selling everything to possess. To see the divine mystery written in our bodies is to be filled with awe, wonder, and profound reverence for the gift of sexuality. This reverence compels us to want to safeguard this sacred mystery from anything and everything that would dishonor it, no matter what the cost or sacrifice. I believe that for the homosexual as well as anyone who struggles with any sexual disorder, one of the greatest barriers to healing is shame and self-hatred. Shame and self-hatred prevent us from all kinds of freedom. They cause you to hide to avoid confession, to fear punishment, and to believe that you can keep a part of your life secret. A secret from everyone. 
but the redemption of our bodies includes the redemption of our sexuality, the real possibility of transforming our desires from self-serving lust to self-giving love. When we were children, we openly and unreservedly needed love and affection from mom and dad. We were unashamed to need their love. And when one or both parents did not give their love unconditionally, we transitioned from eager recipients of generous love to aggressive earners of love. But that transition caused us to experience shame. We learned that we were not good enough, and we felt ashamed. That experience, whenever it occurred, taught us that there was something inherently wrong with us, that one or both parents did not love us as we were. And we believed that there was something bad about us. So we began working to change who we were, to earn their love. Now, any situation that demands more of us is met, sometimes with shame. We feel and think, there's something wrong with me. I'm not good enough for this. I'm going to have to work really hard. Jesus wants to take away your shame and your self-hatred. You cannot press into healing unless you let Jesus take away the barriers that keep you from coming to him. Isaiah 61, 7 says, Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in the land. And everlasting joy will be yours. Jesus can only take away your shame and self-hatred when you confess it to him. You have to confess, Lord, I have committed the sin of self-hatred. I confess to you the shame that I have felt. Lord, would you wash it away from me? Forgive me for my sins. The Bible makes it clear that those who look to Jesus are radiant and have their shame removed. Those who worship images, the Bible says, will be put to utter shame. One of the areas for all of us that produce shame is sexual desire. Particularly lustful sexual desires or any desire that is disordered. But some have been taught to view all sexual desires as ungodly. So we have a mixture in us. Shame also often comes when we compare ourselves to others. We want to know how we measure up compared to other men around us or other women around us. As a man, I wonder, how manly am I? As a woman, my wife wonders, how womanly is she compared to the other women in our church? And based on whatever criteria that we deem as manly criteria or womanly criteria determines how good or ashamed we feel about ourselves. Our view of the masculine and feminine affect how we feel about ourselves. So let's look more directly at what it means to be a man or a woman. I recently dialogued with Val McIntyre, sort of exploring these ideas about gender and how we would respond. I, I raised this question, how would we respond pastorally to a family in our church if they gave birth to a baby with a... Uh, um, a disorder uh, known as having an XXY chromosome biology. These babies are referred to as intersexed. Um, they used to be called hermaphrodites, where they're born with a birth defect in their DNA that results 
in both male and female external sex characteristics. If a family that we loved in our church gave birth to a baby with this problem, how would we help them? How would we counsel them? How would we support them? Society today would counsel the parents to make a choice. Decide if you want a boy or a girl. You make the decision about the sex of your baby, and they would perform surgery to get the external sex characteristics to resemble male or female as much as possible. The view of the human soul that supports this kind of decision is this. God makes neutral or neuter souls, which are clothed in male or female characteristics. The fundamental essence of the child does not change when you change its biological sex. Therefore, it's okay if adults who want to change their sex do, because what is fundamental about the adult doesn't change even as they change the external sex characteristics. But God does not make neutral or neuter souls. God only makes feminine souls, and he makes masculine souls. We believe that there is an intrinsic essential to one's gender, that gender precedes biology. And we believe that the gender of one's soul determines one's biology as male or female. However, it becomes nearly impossible to talk about the differences between male and female without immediately eliciting people's views of the superiority of either male or female identity. We do not believe that either gender is superior to the other. We simply don't believe it. When you hear this teaching and you start filtering it through a power distribution grid, you lose the theology immediately. Gender differences are not about power distribution. Gender is a gift. And our biology is a gift. And as men and women, we form families and communities that reveal the generosity and the love of God. And we need both to do that. There is something unique and noble and essential about being a masculine soul or a feminine soul. And there is intrinsic equity and nobility for both. Therefore, as a result of this birth defect, I would encourage the parents to wait on surgery to take time to discern as parents, and eventually to discern with the child's input whether they're a masculine soul or a feminine soul. And later, perhaps with the child's help in making a decision to have surgery to, to correct some of the birth deformities. This is the harder road. But the greater damage is done by making an arbitrary decision on behalf of the child without their participation in the decision. The child may grow up to resent the decision the parents made, particularly if they feel like the parents arbitrarily chose the wrong gender, at which point they will believe that they were mutilated and blame their parents. If human souls are intrinsically feminine or intrinsically masculine, then as the church we do everything we can to help affirm each man and each woman in their gender identity, to become what is truly great about being a woman or a man according to the beauty and brilliance of God's design. So we believe gender is a gift that God gives to each person, masculine or feminine. And we believe that the church is called to minister healing into every part of the human soul, including gender confusion, to discern what gender God gave them when the biology is ambiguous, and to affirm that gender identity, calling them forward into a full embrace of their gender. I've read many of the recent studies that have been approved by the American Psychological Association that 
have led them to the conclusion that homosexuality is not changeable and that any attempt at reparative therapy is harmful to the individual. But Stan Jones, the provost at Wheaton College, has written extensively why the APA has arrived at false conclusions in the absence of conclusive evidence. And Stan argues that it is false to say that change for the homosexual is impossible. Instead, he argues that change is possible. I've made an information sheet available at the book table with all of Stan Jones' writings available online that you can access. Another counselor has recently explored these same studies as it applies to women with same-sex attraction. Her name is Jan Hallman, and she's written an excellent book called The Heart of Female Same-Sex Attraction, also available at the book table. And her conclusions are the same as Stan Jones. She argues that from twin studies, from identical twin studies, we already know that sexual orientation is not inherited. From Stan Jones' article, Same-Sex Science, available at the book table, he shares that from one identical twin study, 14 out of 42 identical twin pairs share same-sex attraction. In another study in Australia, 3 out of 27 identical male twin pairs shared same-sex attraction. And in a third study in Sweden, out of 71 identical male twin pairs where one had same-sex attraction, only in seven pairs did they share same-sex attraction. Stan summarizes these findings that there may be a biological nudge, but it is clearly not deterministic. Jan Hallman goes on to say that many contemporary studies support the notions that sexuality is, in general is fluid and flexible rather than rigid or fixed. So it's critical at this point to talk about what healing actually looks like for the man or a woman with same-sex attraction or any other disordered desires. I've seen many come to us for help who have an idealistic or unrealistic view of healing. They may believe that healing means a complete change in their attractions from lustful, sinful desires for the same sex to lustful, sinful desires for the other sex. And that is not healing, friends. There is nothing healing about that. God does not take away one sin and replace it with another. God does not take away one kind of temptation and replace it with another. Andy Kamiski, the leader of Desert Stream Ministry and author of the book Naked Surrender, available at the book table, uses a phrase that I find extremely helpful. He calls it whole enough sexuality. And by whole enough, he means the freedom to cultivate holy desire for the other sex and to work out that desire shoulder to shoulder with same-sex friends. Whole enough sexuality does not mean an end to sexual temptation. It means the beginning of real love for others. To be set free for real love, we must face our need for love, especially in historic areas of neglect or hurt. A child needs both masculine and feminine love. A child needs a mother's and a father's love. That is especially clear in his or her acquisition of a healthy gender identity. A child needs to be awakened to the good of their own gender by the same-sex parent and granted a clear, trustworthy vision of the opposite gender through the other sex parent. Through two cooperative parents who hold each other accountable to raise the one they created, 
children become secure and empowered to love. They navigate well the journey to sexual and relational wholeness. Every single person needs attention, affirmation, and affection. Andy Comiskey shared this from his personal testimony. I needed love from men, yet I also realized that in my brokenness and self-protection, I resisted it. That resistance perverted my need. I found it easier to sexualize my need rather than to pursue it rightfully. Better to fantasize than to risk rejection. When God asked me to give up the prospect of ever having a homosexual relationship for the rest of my life, I had hoped God would make the choice easy. I wanted God to reduce my same-sex desire so that the moral choice would be a breeze. But that didn't happen. Nevertheless, I obeyed, and I closed the door on that life, and I haven't reopened that door since. Stan Jones has discovered in his studies that the vast majority of those who make the successful transition to whole enough sexuality are those who are part of a faith community like this. I believe that God is the only one who can restore our broken sexuality and that he does so primarily as we confess our sins and repent. Exactly what the Apostle Peter preached on in our passage in Acts. Many of Leanne Payne's books at the book table are extremely helpful in demonstrating how God restores our broken sexuality. Crisis in Masculinity has been extremely helpful to many men and women in our church and her book, The Broken Image. Tonight, as we moved toward our time of prayer ministry, I want to focus our attention on who we are as men and women. When we were children getting close to age 18, we began to look for the affirmation from mom and especially dad to say these words, Son, you are now a man. Or to the young woman, you are now a grown woman. We passed through various initiating rites into manhood or womanhood, starting with puberty, then getting a driver's license, and finally leaving home for college or some other endeavor after high school. And as we gained independence, we needed someone with authority to tell us that we have crossed the line from childhood to adulthood. I remember in college having a professor tell me that I was a man and no longer a child, and I thought, I've never thought of myself as a man. That's a novel idea. And even with the college students that we work with here, they don't all think of themselves as men and women. We need someone in authority to call us man or woman. You are a man, no longer a boy. You are a woman, no longer a girl. Then, as we engage the world as a man or woman, we couldn't help but compare ourselves to the other men and women around us. How do we rank? How do we measure up against all these other men and women? For guys, we think in terms of manly man or girly man. We measure ourselves using masculine metrics like size or muscle mass, athleticism, leadership, popularity with the ladies, even popularity with the guys, and intellectual promise. And then later in life, we measure our manhood in, in by success in marriage, or the number of children we have, or how much money we make, or position in our career field and success at work. No matter where you find yourself, there are always more manly men next to you. 
But as Christians, we don't need to be manly men. We need to be good men. After God's declaration of man and woman in the garden, he declared that what he had made was good. After you have accepted that you are a grown man, you need to have someone in authority tell you that you are a good man. Men, how do you feel about yourself when you think about what it means to be a good man? How do you feel? How do you feel about your own masculine identity? Do you think of yourself as a good man? Or do you think of yourself perhaps as an incomplete man? And similarly for the women, there are even more factors among women for measuring, such as beauty, body shape, clothing fashions, career, success in motherhood, number of children, the condition of your home, and how organic and healthy your family eats. Women, how do you feel about yourself when you think about your feminine identity? Do you think of yourself as a good woman or an incomplete woman? Let me read two literary descriptions that I find extremely beautiful and helpful as we imagine and picture what it means to be a good man or a good woman. This first one is from a book called Caddy Woodlawn by Carol Riley Brink. And it's in the chapter that is called Father Speaks. And this father is speaking to his young daughter, who's about eight years old, the age of my daughter. The father says, It's a strange thing, but somehow we expect more of girls than of boys. It is the sisters and wives and mothers, you know, Caddy, who keep the world sweet and beautiful. What a rough world it would be if there were only men and boys in it, doing things in their rough way. A woman's task is to teach them gentleness and courtesy and love and kindness. It's a big task too, Caddy, harder than cutting trees or building mills or damming rivers. It takes nerve and courage and patience, but good women have those things. They have them just as much as the men who build bridges and carve roads through the wilderness. A woman's work is something fine and noble to grow up to, and it is just as important as a man's, but no man could ever do it so well. I don't want you to be the silly, affected person with fine clothes and manners whom folks sometimes call a lady. No, that is not what I want for you, my little girl. I want you to be a woman with a wise and understanding heart, healthy in body and honest in mind. The other description I want to read is from C.S. Lewis's book, Paralandra. Uh, All of his literature we've made available at the book table, but his, his book, Paralandra, has a very poetic and literary description of the genders um, near the end of the book that, that I find captivating and ennobling. Um, Here are some of Lewis's descriptions for the genders um, that I think capture the essence of our fundamental polarity. The true masculine, he says, is like rhythm, and the true feminine like melody. The true masculine can be imagined standing with something like a spear in his hand, while the true feminine has her hands open with the palms turned outward. 
The masculine shines with cold and mourning colors, a little metallic, pure, hard, and bracing. The feminine glows with a warm splendor, full of the suggestion of teeming vegetable life. The masculine seems to have the look of one standing armed at the ramparts of his own remote world in ceaseless vigilance, his eyes ever roaming the earthward horizon, whence his danger came long ago, a sailor's look, with eyes that are impregnated with distance. But the feminine has eyes that are opened, as it were, inward, as if they were the curtained gateway to a world of waves and murmurings and wandering airs, of life that rocked in winds and splashed on mossy stones and descended as the dew and arose sunward in thin, spun delicacy of mist. If we were to see ourselves on the other side of heaven, fully restored to the image of God, we might find ourselves saying this, Do not move away. Do not raise me up. I have never before seen a man or a woman. I have lived all my life among shadows and broken images. I imagine that if you're at all like me, many of you occasionally ask the question, Am I good enough? Am I man enough? Am I woman enough? Singles sometimes think there's something wrong with them if they aren't married yet. But we believe, and it is clear in Scripture, that you can be single and an incredibly good man or woman. But not all singles, and certainly not all married people, are good men and women. And we have made idols for ourselves as we have sought to become the ideal man or woman. Our distorted views of the masculine and feminine have resulted in idols, broken images of men and women that we strive to become. Our culture, Hollywood, advertising, and the media contribute to these distorted, broken images of man and woman. And we commit this idolatry without even knowing it sometimes. John Paul II said this quote, This world and its pleasures were created by God to serve as signs or icons of the infinite joys that await us in heaven. We must be careful, however, not to turn these icons into idols. Here is why we need to renounce our idolatries and repent of our distorted views of the masculine and the feminine. If we don't, we live our lives without power, without the power of the Holy Spirit. We lead powerless lives. Speaking of power, most men and women, as I said before, struggle in their views on gender because they are primarily concerned with power distribution. Who has more power in the marriage? Who has more power? Who is superior? We do this because we believe our power comes from how we relate to those around us. And every scripture, every word or action can be interpreted through this power distribution lens. But we don't derive our power from others. God gives us power when we are rightly submitted to him. People think when you submit yourself, you give up your power. But the truth is, submission makes you capable 
of receiving real power. Our power as persons comes from God. A person is more filled with God's power when they surrender to Jesus at the level of his or her affections right from the start. To surrender to Jesus there is to submit to him as Lord of every part of you. It is the beginning of being led by the Spirit. Without submission and surrender to the Lord Jesus, at the level of our, our affections, there is no power of the Holy Spirit. They are on their own. This kind of surrender is a yielding of our will. It means giving up independent views about how one intends to meet sexual needs. Needs. And entrusting those needs to Jesus. It is the type of self-denial that leads to life. I do not exaggerate that in matters of sexual purity and integrity, the whole gospel is at stake. We cannot dismiss what we do with our bodies and still claim to be truthful Christians. So tonight, let's renounce our idols. Let's renounce our broken, distorted images. Let's submit our views on gender to the Lord and receive the power of the Holy Spirit to really and truly change. We need to listen to the Father who names us. We need to hear his voice to tell us if we are a good man or a good woman. He made us to be a certain kind of man or a certain kind of woman. He wants to transform us into that man or woman. We need to stop looking to those images of man and woman that society or pornography or the media have created and instead look to Jesus to call us into our true identity as good men and good women. So let's quiet ourselves. Let's move into prayer. I would encourage you to put space between you and your neighbor, just at least one chair, and to take a posture of prayer, an active and engaged posture of receiving from the Lord. We'll invite the presence of the Lord and listen to him about how we should pray tonight. And I would encourage you um, that for those who have engaged in a uh, a habit of looking at pornography, you have to know you have idols in your imagination and in your heart. You have broken images in you shaping who you are, how you see yourself, and how you see others. And God is going to ask you to renounce and repent of those images. So as we pray... Let the images come up in your imagination. Let them come up. Let the Lord draw them up so that he can draw them out and onto his holy cross. We're going to listen to the Lord for a few minutes. Then I'm going to invite the prayer ministers. If the Lord is speaking a word to you, a scripture to you, you're invited to come and share that here at the microphone. But I encourage you, please keep it brief. And only the word that he has given you to share and nothing more. And then I will invite all of you who wish it to come near the font where we can do a washing using baptismal waters for the 
purifying of our hearts and our imaginations, the symbols uh, that have become distorted. And there, by the power of Jesus' death and resurrection, come free of our idols or any demonic oppression that may have come with those idolatries. Let's pray.